You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning before we begin. Our Father, we come before you because we are confronted with your word and we have it in front of us this morning. And we have gathered here to worship and we have gathered here to sing to you. But most important above all, we need to hear you speak to us through your word. And that is the only place that we can go for a revelation of you and your will for us. And so we ask today that you would, in this text of Scripture, show to us, first and foremost, more about our Savior, Jesus Christ, more about you, our great God, And we pray that we would come to see your grace, your providence, your sovereignty, your goodness, your loving kindness, and a little bit about how you work in our lives. And we pray, second of all, that you would show to us more of ourselves, give us a glimpse into our own soul, our own nature, our own spirit, in order that we might be conformed by your word and transformed by your word. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, in his good name, amen. Acts chapter 27, we're going to be finishing that up this morning. We're going to get through the book of uh, the, the end of chapter 27, and then from the entire chapter, I'm going to try and pull together sort of three applications or three principles from the entire chapter as a whole, because it is all one story. And I don't know about you, but I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I don't know how many times I have read Acts chapter 27 and, and just sort of breezed through it. I mean, I read it and I think, okay, Paul on board a ship, it was a bad time, a lot of storm, big waves, lots of rain, lots of clouds and lands on, a, on an island somewhere, and then there's got to be a purpose in that. And I've always sort of read through and just sort of sort of skipped a lot of the details and not noticed the details and sort of never really thought through the implications of what I'm reading. And I hope that in slowing down and taking this in sort of four large chunks that it has served to sort of add some color to the whole story for you. So I hope that in the last four weeks you have smelt the ocean air and you have felt the waves and you have felt the blast of the the salty seawater on your face and sort of had your lips chapped by it. And I hope you have felt some of the despair and the seasickness and the hunger pains and the disorientation that comes with this whole sea voyage that Paul is on in Acts 27. I hope that you have been able to sort of put yourself in the place of these men on board the ship and imagine what it is like to spend so much time going you don't know where and eventually getting to the point where you despair even of life itself and you're sort of ready to just give it up. I hope you have felt the emotion of everything that we've gone through in Acts 27. So let me review for you real quick everything that's happened in this chapter, and we'll just, I'll just kind of give you the Cliff's Notes version. So sit right back and you'll hear a tale of a fateful trip. Started from a Caesarean port aboard a tiny ship. They went a little ways and they switched freighters. That's all I got about the Gilligan's Island thing. They went a little ways and they switched ships, went from the tiny ship to a much bigger Roman grain freighter. And they were heading westward toward Rome. Paul is on board with Julius, who is the centurion in charge of him. Two of his friends, Luke, who's the a doctor, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, and Aristarchus, one of Paul's traveling companions. And they're headed to Rome because Paul's to stand trial before Caesar in Rome. They got just a little ways and, and the whole the whole voyage seemed like it was just going sideways right away. The wind was contrary. They weren't able to to sail according to their plan, so they had to head south and find shelter near the island of Crete. They pulled into a little harbor there at Fair Havens, and the very first time that we hear Paul speak on board this voyage, he is giving counsel and warning the, the ship's captain, the crew, and Julius. 
and saying, look, if we continue with this voyage, it is going to result in the loss of our ship, the loss of our lives, and the loss of the cargo. We're going to lose everything if you continue. Julius wasn't persuaded by the things that were spoken by Paul, and he listened to the captain, the pilot, who said, you know what, I think we can get that 40 miles down shore to the harbor at Phoenix, and there it would be far better harbor to winter in. So they set out, and that is when the weather started getting rough, and that tiny ship was tossed around like a duck in a wave pool, and they never got to the harbor of Phoenix. Instead, the Euroquillo, that, that northeasterly wind, came down off the land and just pushed them out to sea. And through the storm, they lost sight of the land. They lost sight of the island of Crete. And that was the last they saw of any land for 14 days. Well, they did, they did get shelter on one small little island, the island of Clauda, just long enough, just long enough to pull in the lifeboat, wrap the ship with cables to hold it together, jettison the cargo, jettison the ship's tackle, which was the mainsail spar, and to um, let out the anchors, the drift anchors, and pull down the mainsail. They basically turned the boat into a floating buoy that they were going to cling to until they drifted ashore somewhere. Then for 14 days, without seeing the sun, without seeing the stars, without seeing the moon, they had no idea how far they were traveling, how fast they were traveling, what direction they were traveling. They had no idea if they were heading toward northern Africa, if they were heading toward Italy, if they were heading toward Spain, back to the land of Israel. They had no idea what direction they were traveling. For 14 days, the storm was so intense, the clouds were so thick that they had nothing by which to navigate. They did not see land. They went without food because the food that they had, most of it had been spoiled by the salt water, and they were seasick probably beyond imagination and throwing up and vomiting and doing all the good stuff that comes with being seasick, unable to really sleep on board the ship, unable to eat on board the ship, until after 14 days of bouncing around in the sea, they finally surmised about midnight that they were approaching some land. Now, how were they able to surprise, uh, surmise in the thickness of the clouds and the darkness that they were approaching some land? They heard the water breaking somewhere against some rock and some shore. Now, they had no idea whether land was this direction or that direction or what direction that it was. All they could hear was the waves breaking against the shore. So they took some soundings, and the first sounding was 120 feet. They waited a little while longer. The next sounding was 90 feet. And they said, now we know that we're heading towards shore somewhere. Land is a good thing, but not at 12 o'clock at night when you can't see what the land looks like. So they threw out four anchors from the stern of the boat, and they just waited there and waited for daybreak. They wanted day to break. That brings us up to verse 39 of chapter 27 in the book of Acts. That's where we pick up the story. Oh, I forgot to mention one important detail. I went through all of that. And I forgot this very important detail. In the midst of all of that, right toward the end of that 14 days, the Apostle Paul had an angel of the Lord who stood by him in the middle of the night and said, Paul, don't fear. You're going to stand before Caesar and testify before Caesar, and I've granted you the lives of all those who are on board the ship, 276 persons. So then Paul moved to keep, remember the, I told you the sailors last week had tried to abandon the ship and get out in a little lifeboat under the pretense of letting out anchors. Paul put a stop to that, trying to protect the passengers and keep the sailors on board the ship. And then he dished out the food to 276 persons and said, look, eat, be strengthened. We've got a big day ahead of us tomorrow when the day breaks. It's time to eat. You haven't eaten for 14 days. And so he fed them, blessed them in the presence. All of them were encouraged, and they lightened the ship, and they were waiting till daybreak. Verse 39. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to drive the ship onto it if they could. Now, now what time did they surmise that they were approaching land? About midnight. When does daybreak in late fall? You know, mid to late October. What time's a sunrise in mid to late October? You know how much time there is between midnight and sunrise? That's a long time, isn't it? Five, six hours, maybe more? That would feel like an eternity, wouldn't it? Five or six hours would feel like an eternity. 
You've got the anchors out. You've got the rudders positioned. You're, you're holding, trying to hold ground, not wanting to drift toward any kind of land. You don't know what the land looks like. You don't know what's out there. It's all dark. You can't see past the, past your arm's length ahead of you because everything is so pitch black in the middle of the night and you're just waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're hoping that eventually the sun will come up. That five or six hours would have felt like eternity. It would have to me. Sitting there being tossed about, waiting for the sun to come up. Day finally broke, and look what Luke says, verse 39. They could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach. Now, what does Luke mean when he says they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach? You know what he means? They were able to look at the land. They saw a bay. They saw a beach. But they could not recognize where this land was at. They didn't know, is this an island? Is it a continent? They couldn't see far enough in the, in the early morning hours with the storm there and the waves, they couldn't see far enough to see mountain ranges or see shorelines or see ports or harbors or anything around. They just All they could see was this bay and this beach, and they had no idea. Is it an island? Is it a continent? They had no idea. Are we, are we, are we near northern Africa? Are we near Italy? Have we drifted off to Spain? Are we you know, across the Pacific Ocean over at the New World? Did we drift off the end of the earth? Where, where are we at? Are we drift back to the island of Crete? Where we, They couldn't recognize the landmass. And these sailors had sailed these parts forever. Their whole lives were spent on the sea. They would have been able to sail past any piece of land and say, oh, I can tell by the mountain range and the tree line what piece of property this is. They were familiar with all the shoreline. But they could not in the storm see enough of the shoreline to tell where they were at. But they were able to discern a, a, a bay, and they were able to, to discern a beach. And they purposed to drive the ship ashore if they could. So look what they do in verse 40. Now, there are three things that they do, and all of these things had to be done like this, simultaneously almost. So the crew is busy. Now this is why Paul wanted the sailors on board the ship and not sailing off in the lifeboat for land. Because you have to have experienced seamen who are able to, to, to do all of these tasks to get the ship ready to beach it. Verse 40. Casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. So they do all these things. They, they got four anchors who are off the, uh, that are off the stern of the boat. They, they basically either loosened the ropes and threw them into the sea, or they just cut the rope to the anchors. At the very same time, they loosened the ropes that held the rudders. Now, the rudders were kind of like oars that stuck out the sides of the ship, and they would stick them out, and they would tie them uh, tight so that the rudders wouldn't move. It would sort of help the ship to not be bannered about so much and not to drift so much. So they cut the ropes of the anchors. They loosen the ropes of the rudders so the rudders will play. This gives the ship the ability to move. And at the same time, they put up the sail that's at the front of the ship, hoping that the wind is going to catch that and it's just going to drive them right into shore. So they're heading toward land. And you think, finally, right? 14 days, we get land. And, and, and they let that go, and they're moving, and it, this is just, it's just going to get better and better and better. This is the best it's been forever, right? What could possibly go wrong? Land is right there. I mean, with an, in arm's reach, right? Wrong. Look at verse 41. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. So they start moving, and they think, all right, we're heading toward land. They can see the beach. They're aiming for a sandy beach. This is, this is a dream come true. <laughs> After 14 days of being tossed about like a little rubber ducky in a wave pool, you know how good land looks? You just want to get your feet on solid ground. And so they're approaching the land, and all of a sudden, everything stopped. You can just hear that boat just creak and grind as everything comes to a screeching halt. Everybody flies forward to the, on the deck, sliding around. Things are disturbed, and they cannot get the boat moved. Luke says it happened where the two seas met. The, the, the ship became anchored or, or, or lodged in a reef, and they couldn't get it free. 
Now, if you go to the island of Malta today and you were to go to St. Paul's Bay, there is a place called St. Paul's Bay, a little city there, a little resort area because tourists come there all the time. If you were to go there and you were to sort of walk around the bay and visit the different beaches and the different places where somebody could land, you would find that the exact location of Paul's uh, shipwrecking there in in St. Paul's Bay would be much disputed. Nobody can agree on where it was at. You know why? Because if you owned a piece of property along St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta, where do you think Paul would have been shipwrecked? Right on your piece of property, right? And you put up a little hut and you'd sell little glass figurines of a Roman grain freighter and you'd have a little piece of wood that uh, you would sell to people that came from the actual ship that Paul was shipwrecked on. And you laugh at that, but you look, if you don't think tourists will buy almost anything, just walk downtown sometime between June 1st and August 31st and you'll find that tourists will buy almost anything. So you can go to St. Paul's Bay today and you can see three or four places where they say that Paul landed and was shipwrecked. But Luke gives us a little detail that nails it down to a very narrow window of land. Now, you can go online, and the wonders of modern technology, I love it because you can take a trip and never leave your house. You can go online, and you can pull up a satellite image of the island of Malta, and you can see that what I'm about to tell you is true. In St. Paul's Bay, this little detail that Luke gives us, by the way, is this little detail. Where the two seas met, they ran aground. Where the two seas met. And here's what the island of Malta looks like. You can pull it up online. Pull up a, a, a picture of the island of Malta, and you will see that St. Paul's Bay, and I'm going to try and get my directions right because I'm not facing the same way you are. If you looked at the island of Malta, you would find that St. Paul's Bay is kind of etched into the island of Malta like this. And off of the westernmost part of St. Paul's Bay, there is a little tiny rock island right off the coast of the, of the island of Malta, just a tiny little thing. You can't even see it on the map that you're looking at in your lap. A tiny little island it's about 100 yards off of the coast of the island of Malta. And right there between that island and the island of Malta is this place where it's just a little breezeway where ships could go through. It's not very deep in there, and it's just about 100 yards wide. And right next to that breezeway, right across the little waterway from this rock island, is a sandy beach on the island of Malta. And that is where sailors today and back then and forever have said the two seas meet, right between Those two islands, the big island of Malta and that little island, is a place where all the currents kind of come together, and they say that's where the two seas meet. They called it the Adriatic Sea, which was to the east, and the, I don't know, Mediterranean or whatever it was that they said was to the west. That's where the two seas met near the island of Malta. And it would wash up between those two islands. It would wash up sand, and it would wash up clay in the ocean during the storms, and it would cause these little reefs. Now, that's where Paul was shipwrecked, right where the two seas met. And the, the ship ran aground. They were heading right between that breezeway, right for that sandy beach. And that's where the two seas met. That's where the reef was formed. And that's where they ran aground. And they had that prow, the bow of the boat, stuck in that sand reef. And they couldn't move it. And I imagine a good sailor is going to use everything. He's going to pull down the sails. He's going to try and wait till the wind reverses and lift the sails. He's going to use the rudders. He's going to do everything but dynamite to try and get the boat out of that reef so that they could maybe even sail around that little rock island but the, the bow of the ship is stuck fast, and the stern of the ship was being beaten up by the waves. It was beginning to disintegrate. They say a large grain freighter. How in the world does a large grain freighter, the, the stern of which, become beaten up and disintegrated by mere waves? For 14 days, that boat has been beaten and tossed by the storm. You remember they undergirded it with the cables just to hold the thing together? That ship is likely at its weakest possible state and still remain floating. And without the bow moving, the, the, the waves are just beating against the back of the sheep, sh- ship and it begins to just disintegrate. It's starting to fall apart. Now things couldn't get any worse, could they? Verse 42. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. You and I might not think anything of that. 
except that our favorite apostle is a prisoner. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. Why did the soldiers want to kill the prisoners? Because if they're going to abandon ship and they're going to head to land, likely some of those prisoners are not going to be able to swim with shackles on, so if they're going to take them to land, they've got to unshackle them. But if you're a prisoner wanted by the Roman government facing execution and the, the Roman guard unshackles you and says, okay, jump overboard and swim to land, what are you going to do? You're going to run like the wind once your feet touch land. You don't care where you're going, you just want to be hid from the Roman centurion and his soldiers. That's what they were fearing. But if a Roman soldier allowed a prisoner to escape, the Roman soldier who allowed the prisoner to escape would face the same punishment that that prisoner faced. So some of these soldiers are fearing execution or time in prison, the confiscation of their property if their soldier escapes. So they said, well, it's better. Let's just kill the prisoners. We don't want them to escape, right? This is life and death situation. We want life. We can give them death. That's in our power. So we give them to death. We'll take the life. That's the, that's the plan that they go with. They want to kill the soldier, or they kill the prisoners, so that none of them would swim away and escape. Verse 43, but the centurion wanted to bring Paul safely through and kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump aboard first and get to land. Now the intention of the soldiers is to kill all the prisoners. Paul's a prisoner. There's 276 people aboard the ship. We don't know how many of them were prisoners. We just know that there was more than one. Paul was one and there were others that came from Caesarea. Not all 276 are prisoners. You realize that? Because you've got the crew, you've got just regular passengers on board the ship, then you've got the centurion and his soldiers and a number of prisoners. So from what I've read, I would guess that they probably transported between 12 and maybe 20 prisoners at a time on board ships like this, guarded by soldiers. But Paul is one of those prisoners. The soldiers want to kill all the prisoners. But you notice how cruel that is, by the way, to kill the prisoners? Particularly Paul. Do you think that the centurion and the soldiers owed Paul something by this point? Don't you think they did? They owed Paul their life, didn't they? Why did they owe Paul their life? He's the one who told them, don't leave Fair Havens or we're going to lose the ship and the cargo and even our lives. He was the one who had the visit of the angel and had been praying for them so that the Lord said, Paul, I've granted to you the lives of all the men traveling on board this ship. And as long as they're with you, they're safe. It was Paul who had kept the sailors from jumping overboard, which would have caused even the centurion and the soldiers to lose their lives. It was Paul who had broke the bread and encouraged them. It was Paul who had led the effort to sort of throw over the rest of the grain, to lighten the ship, to beach the ship. Paul was the only reason that this ship had stayed afloat for the last 14 days. It was because Jesus had made a promise to Paul, I will take you to Rome and I will plant you there safely and securely so that you can testify for me there, so that you can stand before Caesar and preach the gospel to Nero. That was the reason that everybody else was alive. It was only for Paul. Now the centurion, now the soldiers want to kill him. But God rules and he overrules. And the centurion looks at the intention. He says, whoa, stop. Listen, I want to make sure that this guy gets safely through to Rome. Do you see how much respect and admiration Julius the centurion had for Paul by this point? And look, even if it costs us our lives, we owe him at least this much. We're not going to kill the prisoners. We're going to bring all 276 safely to shore. That's what we're going to do. So the centurion Julius gives the order, abandon ship. Some of you, if you can swim, jump overboard now. Start swimming to shore. Unfetter the prisoners, uh, the crew, the passengers, everybody who can swim. There were some, obviously, who probably couldn't swim. Some of the older, some of the more infirm, maybe. Some who just couldn't swim. They swim like a lead balloon. i got people that I know that swim like a lead balloon. There were some on board the ship who simply couldn't swim. They were going to wait until the ship got beat up enough that they could grab onto a plank or something, verse 43 says, where they could float inward and come to land. So they abandoned ship, and look at verse 44. 
and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they all were brought safely to land. Don't you want to do that? I want to do that. Now, four long weeks that we've spent being bashed around at sea, right? Do you realize that it, you know how much time has passed between the beginning of chapter 27 and the end of chapter 27? A month. One month's time they've spent at sea. From the time they left Caesarea, it was about two weeks before they even got to the island of Crete, where Paul said, let's not go any further. After that, it was another two weeks before they hit the island of Malta. At the end of chapter 27, and their feet touched land. They've been a month at sea. And listen, remember, this is Paul's fourth shipwreck. Fourth shipwreck. He wrote 2 Corinthians a couple years before this voyage, and he said to the Corinthians then, he said, I've been shipwrecked three times in a day and a night I've spent in the deep. Before this voyage, Paul had three shipwrecks to his credit. I mean, he's he's been there, done that, and he's got a whole t-shirt collection to show that he's he's done this before. This is now his fourth one. You get the feeling that bringing Paul on board is... Last thing you'd want to be on a ship with is the Apostle Paul. You, you book passage, you get on there. Hey, who are you? I'm Paul. See you. I'll take the next flight. I'll take the next ship. I do not want to be anywhere near you and any kind of a voyage or a ship or a boat or anything because if you're on board, it's going to go down. You know something's got to go wrong. Like having Rosie O'Donnell at NRA convention, you know something's going to go sideways somewhere <laughs> along the line. Having Paul on board, you know something is going to happen. But this is his fourth shipwreck. Now he's safely on land, and now we'll wrap all this up, and I want to give you just three principles, three sort of um, applications from this text, or the whole, the whole chapter as a whole. And you can write these down in your notes. The first one is this. We learn something significant about ourselves from this chapter. And here's what it is. Our true character is revealed in the midst of adversity and suffering. Our true character is revealed in the midst of adversity and suffering. When you're not suffering and you're not dealing with any kind of adversity or difficulty in your life, it's easy for us to keep the veneer up. It's easy for us to keep the plastic face on. It's easy for us to keep the mask on, look real Christian, sound real Christian, come in here on a Sunday morning, shake hands, hug everybody, put the big smile on and pretend that everything's going okay. That's real easy. It's easy to hide a shallow faith when everything's going well. But it's when adversity comes and it's when suffering strikes and it's when things go sideways that our true character is revealed. Then the mask comes off for everybody to see. Then is when you see the depth of an individual's faith. And one of two things will happen with people who have shallow faith. When adversity strikes, they will either question God and get bitter and walk away from Him, or they will go back to their faith, and that faith will be deepened and strengthened as a result of the trials and the adversity. And here you see in Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul handling a different kind of adversity and a different kind of difficulty than we've seen him handle through the rest of the book of Acts. Through the previous chapters in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul's difficulty and adversity and suffering had always been brought on through, through his proclamation of righteousness or the gospel. Do you know that? He would preach the gospel and the Jews would get mad and they would stone him. He would preach the gospel and the, and the local officials would get mad and they would put him in prison. He would preach the gospel or take a stand for righteousness and they would beat him. All of his adversity, all of his suffering, all of his difficulty, all of his hardships came as a result of his proclamation of truth and his stand for righteousness. And when that happens in your life, when you approach somebody with the gospel and they spit in your face and they hate you for it and they fire you from your job, you can always go back and say, the promise in Scripture is that when I suffer for righteousness' sake, I am blessed. And that I can count on the promise of God that I'm doing something good and if I'm suffering for doing good, then the blessing of God is upon me and something good is happening. Jesus has promised this. But this is not a suffering, this is not an adversity in chapter 27 that is in any way related to Paul's stand for righteousness, is it? 
It has nothing to do. It's, this is the storm. This is the shipwreck. This is hardship that comes, not as a result of preaching the gospel, but just as a result of being on board a ship. He hasn't done anything righteous to suffer for righteousness' sake. Now, when you, when you get fired from your job because you have a Bible on your desk, you can say, well, I've suffered for righteousness' sake. I've shared the Lord with this person. He hates me. He's got something against me. He wants me out of the workplace. So he fires me because I'm a Christian. And you can rightly say, okay, I have suffered for righteousness because of my stand for truth. It's my stand for Christ. That's why I'm suffering affliction. But when your kid gets sick and your fridge breaks down, the hot water heater goes out and it hails and destroys your roof and, and your, your son knocks a baseball through the window and destroys your picture window in the front and your car breaks down, you lose your job because of the economy all at the same time, how do you handle it then? Then what do you do? Are you suffering for righteousness? No. But listen, friends, it's then that our true character is revealed. See how Paul handled this? Just a calm, confident, faithful trust in God that God was going to keep His Word. He was handling it. He believed in the sovereignty of God. He trusted the sovereignty of God. He knew God in His providence was doing something here. And he just rested on that. And with calm and cool and persuasiveness and gentleness and grace, Paul handled himself. You say, did those character qualities just suddenly develop on board that ship? Step on board the ship and all of a sudden he's a gracious, calm, faithful, trusting individual? Not at all. Those character qualities were there before. And we see them come out when he suffers for righteousness, but when everything goes sideways and it has nothing to do with righteousness, it's just a bad turn in life, what do you see in the Apostle Paul? The same character qualifications. The same character traits. He's the same type of man, whether he's suffering for righteousness or just everything's going haywire. We learn a lot about ourselves from this. We learn that our true character is revealed in the midst of adversity and suffering. Further, we learn something about adversity and suffering in all of this. And this is what it is. That you and I are not immune to it. You and I are not immune to it. Jesus said, in this life you're going to have tribulation. You say amen to that? In this life you're going to have tribulation. He has not promised us freedom from disease. He has not promised us freedom from death. He has not promised us freedom from difficulty. He has not promised us that we're not going to have a stroke, that we're not going to come up with some debilitating illness, that we're not going to get in a car accident. He has not promised us that we're never going to be disfigured, that we're never going to suffer heartache, that we're not going to lose a child, that we're not going to face difficulties, financial troubles. He hasn't promised us any of that. The only thing we have secure is the destination. You understand? That's just the destination. He has promised us, I'm coming back, that where I am, there you may be also. The destination is secure, and that's all God promised Paul. Paul, I will see you through to Rome. He didn't promise him a carnival cruise on the way to Rome. They didn't leave Caesarea on board of a party ship and land in Caesarea all under sunny skies. The Lord didn't do that for Paul. And friends, if He didn't do that for the Apostle Paul, don't for a minute believe that He's promised you that, that He's going to do that for you. If He saw fit to bring adversity and trouble and difficulty and suffering into the life of His Apostle to teach Him something and to sanctify Him, and you need to understand you ought to expect the same thing. In this life, you'll have tribulation. You're going to suffer. The destination is secure, friends, but there's no promises about the trip. The trip is going to be hard, and you and I ought to expect that. Third thing we learn about this, not only do we learn about ourselves, that our adversity, our, our characters revealed in adversity, not only do we learn that we're not immune to adversity and suffering, third thing is we learn a lot about the character and nature of God in all of this, too. We learn about God himself. Do you think it was possible for God just to simply say, peace, be still, and have the storm disappear? Think he could do that? I absolutely believe he could do that. If he will, he controls nature. He controls the elements. He, he, he is the master behind all of that. 
He, he rides upon the storm. He uses those things to the accomplishment of his purpose. Do you think that Jesus was able to do something on earth here in his humanity that he is unable to do from heaven in his glory? To simply say, peace, be still, and have the wind and the seas obey him? He did that while he was here. And the disciples said, who is this man that even the wind and the seas obey him? He just speaks and the elements obey. Why? Because he controls the elements. If there's a snowflake, he created it. If a drop of rain falls, it's by his command. If the wind blows, it's at his bequest. He does these things. He moves in his creation. And he works all of them for his providential good. Through his providence and through his grace, he works all of them to his determined end. He works all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1 says. All things, and that includes storms. That includes disaster. That includes difficulties. And his shoulders are big enough to take credit for those things. And you and I ought to give the credit where the credit is due. He could have just simply said, no, that's enough. Stop. Blue skies. And the blue skies could appear. Had he willed it, he could have done that. But he didn't will it. Instead, he determined to send difficulty. Why? You and I aren't going to know the ultimate answer to that, but I do know that the Lord wanted Paul on Malta. You're going to see why in chapter 28. He did want Paul on Malta. And he said, I'll, I'll get you there. I'm going to get you on Malta. I'm going to get you to Rome. But remember, the voyage is going to be a little rough. But I control that, the Lord said. You've got to eventually come back to the sovereignty of God. And what's depressing and sad to me is that, friends, when difficulty strikes and affliction comes, you know the first thing that gets attacked? The sovereignty of God. People say, oh, God would never will difficulty upon me. Really, that's your fat, posh American mindset that thinks that. That's because you sit in your armchair and you watch TV and you have all the food to eat that you, and every creature comfort you could possibly imagine is right at your disposal. God would never will to bring affliction into my life. Oh no, oh no. Friends, He does. There's a purpose behind it. It's the open theist who says God could control, God would control the storm if He could just, if He could, He would stop it, but He can't. Or the open theist says God would prevent bad things from happening if He could foresee them happening, but He can't foresee them happening and so He doesn't prevent them. It's a denial of God, who God is. If that's how you view God, then let me ask you this question. Why do you pray? Why would you pray? What do you think he's going to do? can't do anything. If he doesn't control the elements, why do you pray? Is it just because you want some sort of cosmic counselor to hear your griefs and, and, and hopefully do something if he can do it? The people who deny the sovereignty of God in life's difficulties and adversities, friends, by and large, 90% of the time I find this is true, they're the people who do not have to suffer you read the life and the works of men like Charles Spurgeon, John Bunyan, William Cooper, guys who lived with suffering and depression and hardship and affliction their whole lives, and you will find this. Every last one of them will go back and say, I trust in the providence and the sovereignty of God in all of this. Those are the men that were afflicted. Spurgeon said, when I suffer, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which I lay my head can't take that away from somebody. We learn something about us. We learn something about affliction. We learn something about God. That He is gracious and that He's working all things after the counsel of His own will. 1731, William Cooper was born. William Cooper, you may have seen his name. It's, it's actually spelled, the last name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, as in you expect it to be pronounced Cowper, but it's actually Cooper. William Cooper was born in 1731. He was a poet. His mother died when he was six years old, and his dad put him in a boarding school. And there he was raised in a boarding school for his whole life. His dad was basically absent. In that boarding school, he was neglected. He was abused. He was uh, hated. 
And horrible things came out of that boarding school experience. And after the age of 18, he got out. And for his whole life, William Cooper fought with depression and despair and anxiety, irrational fears, and all of those things. He was a very emotionally, spiritually, mentally tormented individual his whole life. At the age of 28, on the verge of going into civic, in, into, a, into a real posh government job with a lot of responsibility and a lot of blessings and everything, he had a complete mental breakdown. He tried to commit suicide three different ways and failed every time. He was put into an asylum for a little while. He was later released from that asylum. A couple years later, he had another mental breakdown, went back into the asylum, a different asylum, and there he met a Christian doctor. And that Christian doctor had his Bible there, shared the gospel with William Cooper, and William Cooper came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know that song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath its flood cleanse all their guilty stains? That was written by William Cooper. After he came to faith in Christ, the mental depression, the despair, the anxiety, the irrational fears, and the self-loathing never did leave him. He wrestled with that for the rest of his life. And every 10 years, he would go into the cycle of having a massive depression. Eventually, he moved to Olney, England, where John Newton, the the author of Amazing Grace, he was pastoring a church there. And John Newton befriended him and became his friend and, and ministered to him and discipled him, and they shared a long, rich friendship for years. And they actually teamed up on a, on a book, a, a hymn book, that they were going to publish together because Newton was a songwriter, and he saw a Cooper's abilities to write music and lyrics and poetry, and so they wanted to sort of collaborate on this project and produce a hymnal that their church could sing. Newton produced 200 of the hymns, Cooper produced 68 of the hymns, and he never finished his part in the hymnal because in the midst of all of that, he had another mental breakdown. Fits of depression where he would write things about even questioning the goodness and the sovereignty of God in bringing him all the way through to heaven. And one author, one biographer, and I'd recommend if you want more on this, it's a fascinating subject, to read John Piper's book, The Hidden Smile of God, where he gives a little mini-biography of William Cooper. And Piper writes in that book that he thinks one of the reasons that the Lord allowed that in the life of William Cooper was to drive Cooper to the breast of God. Because Cooper, the whole time that he wrestled with these things and fought with these things and was under that kind of affliction, he just was driven to the face of God in all of that. His his faith never faltered. But he questioned, why do I have to deal with the depression? How do I get over the depression? And John Newton was never able to help his friend through that. He, he suffered with that and was afflicted by that all the way up until his dying day. And he actually died in the midst of one of his darkest depressions ever. And you say, why would the Lord do that? When you're, when you're suffering with that and you're dealing with that type of affliction, what is it that you keep in the back of your mind? What is it that you think to yourself? What truth do you hold on to? You know what Cooper's truth was? God is sovereign in all of this. And he could lift my depression like that if he wanted to, but he wants to teach me something in the midst of it. And he was just before God and holding on to God the whole time. In the midst of that darkness, he wrote a very famous poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Have you heard that? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-ending skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Listen to this. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, 
and He will make it plain. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your unfathomable grace, Your rich, wonderful mercy. And thank You, Father, for this fresh glimpse again into just who You are and what You're capable of doing. Help us to learn from the saints of old. Help us to learn from Your Word and to trust You in the midst of everything. We know that through all of life's difficulties, all of the affliction, all of the suffering, that You're working a good and gracious purpose. We thank You that we can trust You, that You are ever there, And we thank you that truly you plant your steps in the seas and you ride upon the storm and that behind your frowning providence you hide a smiling face. We pray, God, that you'd give us the grace to catch a glimpse of that smiling face in the midst of life's difficulties, that we might be encouraged, that we might be faithful and give us the grace to stand fast and stand firm in your word, in your love for us, and in your grace. We ask this in the precious and good name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.